Good morning, church. My name is Jacob. This is my wife, Melissa. This is our bun in the oven, and we are, uh, we come here. We love this church, and uh, we'll be reading the scripture for this morning for our Advent season. This morning's text comes from Exodus chapter 25 and Exodus chapter 40. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves them. You shall receive the contribution from me. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you, concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. And now to Exodus chapter 40, verses 20 to 38. He took the testimony and put it into the ark, and put poles in the ark, and, and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burnt fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it burnt offering and grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they had approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. And in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jacob and Melissa. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to see some new faces, people who are in from out of town, visiting family. Uh, we welcome you, and we hope that you feel like you're part of the family. We also have a lot of our people out of town visiting their family, so let's keep them in our, our prayers. Um, I don't know about you, but as we read that passage, didn't it just like fill your heart and spirit with the joy of Christmas? What a great Christmas passage that was, right? Well, it may not sound like a Christmas passage, but I hope to make that clear in this, in this message. Today, the first Sunday in December, we begin our Advent series. And if you're not familiar with the term Advent, 
Synonyms would be words like arrival or beginning or dawn. One definition uh, says it this way, that Advent is a season observed in many Christian churches as a time of expectant waiting and preparation for the celebration of the nativity or the birth of Jesus at Christmas. Advent is about the anticipation of King Jesus who arrived on that very first Christmas. And for Christians, Advent and Christmas remind you that you really can experience God. You really can experience God every day, Christmas or not. This Advent season, we will be looking at Christmas through the lens of the temple or the portable version of the temple known as the tabernacle. And here's why. The tabernacle teaches you how to experience God. You know, it's not enough just to say, I believe in God. It's one thing to believe God exists. It's a totally different thing to experience God in a very real way. The temple is the place and the way that we experience God. And I'll explain that to you throughout the rest of this message. But here's what I know. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that it's so easy to slip into kind of a Christian cruise control and then just go through the religious motions because that's just what you do. But then your faith becomes dead because you've somehow become okay with not experiencing God. You've become cold to obeying him, cold to worshiping him, cold to talking to him, cold to listening to him. And yet deep down, you want to experience God. You want to experience the reality of God. You want to experience it powerfully. You want to experience relationally. You want to experience intimately. And the scriptures say, if you are going to experience God, it must be through the temple. So this is critical. And so I, I guess right off the top, we've got to ask ourselves, how in the world is this ancient temple important for you today? Well, I mean, it must be important because Exodus devotes 13 chapters to the temple. That is one-third of the book of Exodus. There are seven chapters giving all these detailed instructions about how to build the temple, and then there are six chapters describing the building of it. Now, this might not sound very exciting to you, but it's critically important. And I hope we all see that today, this morning. So I want to encourage you to shift into learning mode, to paying attention mode, to receiving mode, and pray that God would speak to you. And maybe you've read this passage a million times, and pray that he would give you a fresh, new insight, something that makes God more real to you this morning as we kick off our Advent series. So, 
What do we learn about experiencing God through this ancient passage? We're going to look at three lessons, one from the ark, one from the curtain, and one from the altar. Let's look at them. If you're following along, use an outline in your bulletin. First, we look at the ark. Now, what is the ark? Well, the ark was this wooden box that was 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches tall. And this wooden box was covered with pure gold. And on top was a solid cover called the atonement cover, or the mercy seat, or the throne of grace. And overarching the throne of grace were these two solid gold cherubim. Now, in Western culture, when you think of cherubim, something weird has happened. I think it happened somewhere in the medieval times or something. Cherubim somehow became these cute, chubby, little, naked babies with wings, a bow, and an arrow. That's not biblical. It's not in the Bible. I don't know who thought that up, but it's not in there. Cherubim, when you read in the Bible, they are intimidating. They are fierce, right? And so overarching this ark, the top of it, the mercy seat, are these two cherubim. They were powerful, and they're intimidating. And God says in chapter 25, above the ark, between these two cherubim, I will meet you there. This right here, I, God saying, I will meet you there, is the most important thing about the ark. The ark is central to the tabernacle. God says to Moses, Make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. God's purpose for the temple is to dwell with his people. The the tabernacle, the, the portable temple, is the place where God meets with his people, and people experience God's presence. So, what does the ark teach us? The ark teaches us that God desires to be with you. God desires to be with you. I mean, this is amazing. The more you think about it, the more more mind-boggling it is. Here's the one who created the entire universe with this power of his word and holds it all together, and, and he did it all out of nothing. He existed before creation and apart from creation. God does not need creation to be God. He does not need us, but God, our all-powerful, holy God, chose to bound himself to us so much that he desires to dwell in our midst. He longs to be with his people. God longs to be with you. Now, this is not a minor theme in the, in the, in the Bible. Some theologians say that the central theme of the Bible is the Emmanuel principle. And Emmanuel means what? God with us. We see this all throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And we usually only hear about this around Christmas time. In the beginning, in the beginning of the Bible, 
we see the Garden of Eden. And I don't know if you've heard about the Garden of Eden being described as the first temple, but that's what theologians say regularly, that the Garden of Eden was like the first type of temple. Because in the garden, God's people experienced God's presence. And at the end of the Bible, we hear a loud voice proclaim, now the dwelling of God is with his people and he will live with them. And you see the importance of that here. See, here's what we need to know. We need to remember that all of Scripture, the, the Bible's not an encyclopedia. The Bible's not just, shouldn't be limited to just some kind of how-to manual. All of Scripture is about the redemptive history of God, our triune God, returning us to the fullness of God's presence by being fully renewed and renewed heavens and a renewed earth. And one-third of Exodus is devoted to the temple, because God is saying it is the highest importance for me to be with you and for you to be with me. We see just how important it is when we see what happens next. Now, after these instructions were given and before they used instructions to build the temple, what happens? Right in the middle of those two things, the people make a golden calf, bow down, and they worship it. Can you believe that? God is the one who delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They saw God bring the ten plagues and, and part the Red Sea in a powerful way so that they could get out, and they still make their own gods and they worship them? And God doesn't just wipe them out. Instead, he has his people build a temple to be with them. How can we possibly comprehend God's desire to be with us? Now, here's the truth. Whether, whether you feel this or not, think it or not, believe it or not. Deep down, we are all created with the desire to be with God. And I'll try to illustrate that through the Psalms. In Psalm chapter 27, the psalmist is absolutely terrified. He is filled with fear. But then he looks, we see him look beneath his terror. He looks beneath his fear. And he realizes that what he is really longing for is God. He says, one thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the temple of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That was what was under his fear. And in Psalm 42, the psalmist is depressed, and he says, why so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? But then he looks beneath his depression, and he realizes that what he's really longing for is God. And so he says, as the deer pants for streams of water, and that phrase right there, it's not like the deer's going, I'm a little thirsty. I think I'll lap up a little water in the stream. This is a picture of a deer dying of thirst, desperate for water. 
So my, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? And then in Psalm 73, the psalmist, we see a psalmist who's angry, a psalmist who's bitter because the wicked are prospering and the godly are suffering. But then he looks beneath his anger. He looks beneath his bitterness, and he realizes that what he's really longing for is God. And so he says this. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, Beneath your fear, beneath your discouragement, beneath your emptiness, beneath your anger, beneath your bitterness, beneath your hopelessness are deep longings. And beneath all of your longings really is a longing to be with God. And that longing is there is because God created you to know him. God created you to love him and for you to be known by God and for you to be loved by God. He desires to be with you. Do you believe that this morning? Do you want that this morning? Maybe you don't know, but I'm telling you to experience God, the desire that you've been created with your emotions, your deep longings prove that you were created to know God and be with God. So how do you experience God? Well, the first lesson we need to learn comes from the ark. Know and believe that God wants to be with you. Second lesson of the three. Second lesson we learn comes from the curtain. So the ark was placed in a tent and there were two parts to the tent. And I don't know if you can make out the picture or not, but this, cut, this cutout kind of shows you. There's, there's this front room was the holy place, and the back room was the most holy place where the ark was situated, where it was placed. And the two rooms were separated by a curtain, wall to wall, and embroidered into the curtain were more cherubim. And where else were the cherubim? Over the ark. And earlier, before Exodus, in Genesis, where were the cherubim? At the gates of the Garden of Eden. They were placed there at the gate after the fall to prevent anyone from entering into the presence of God. And there on the curtain, these, these cherubim were sewn in for the same reason. No one, it communicated, no one could enter into the presence of God except for the high priest. And the high priest could only do it once a year on, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and only after a sacrifice was made. 
And this priest entered with, with trembling, with, with, uh, that, that the fire of God's holiness might consume him. And, and, he, and he wore a robe that had bells sewn around the bottom. And, and tradition says that those bells were there so you could uh, hear them ringing when he moved so that people outside would know if he was still alive or not. Tradition tells us that a rope was tied around his, his ankle so that if he died, people could drag his body out. How would you like that job? None of the people had desired to go in. So what's this curtain teach us? God desires to be with us, but our sin prevents us from experiencing God's presence. So that's second in your outline. Our sin prevents us from being with God. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, you know what, uh, pastor, guy, I was with you on that first lesson. You know, God desires to be with us. That made me feel happy. But I totally disagree with you on this second point. My God welcomes everybody no matter what. There is no curtain because my God is the God of love. Well, let me tell you something. The curtain, putting up the curtain, was a loving thing to do. It was a loving thing to do. Let me show you. Say your best friend, the person that you're closest to, has fallen into some, some kind of harmful addiction. And this addiction is hurting themselves and the people are, are around them. And so what do you do? Well, you have three options. One option is you just bail. You walk out, you write them off, and you say, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with you ever again. Have a nice life, right? That's one option. The second option would be to become a codependent, where you enable their addiction and, and maybe you become addicted to your own destructive habits within that relationship. And a third option is you put up an appropriate boundary, right? And you say, I love you. I love you. And because I love you, I hate what you're doing to yourself. You're destroying yourself. And we have to fix the problem. And until you're willing to fix uh, the problem, then our relationship is defined by this problem. It can't be the, the, the same. And that's the option that, that God chooses. He does not write you off. He does not forsake you. He does not leave you. He does not enable your addiction that hurts you and other people. He puts up an appropriate boundary. He puts up a curtain. He says, I am still here. I absolutely love you. And because I love you, I hate what you're doing to yourself. And I am here to fix the problem. But until you're willing to admit that you have a problem, there's a curtain between us. And let me tell you something. That's a loving thing to do. So what's our addiction? So easy to hear an example of maybe a heroin addict or or a uh, or meth addict or whatever kind of addict and, and separate ourselves from them. The truth is, in one, to one degree or another, in one way or another, we're all addicts. We're all addicted to 
something. That may be hard to wrap your, your head around, but follow me on this. We all are addicted to making golden calves. See, you know what most people and what gets preached and taught most of the time is that, that people think that, that sin is just simply breaking the rules. It is so much deeper than that. Sin goes way deeper. Sin is about idolatry. Sin is, is about making, making golden calves. And a golden calf is anything, even good things, anything we look to other than God or in addition to God for a reason for living. It's, it's whenever we say, you know what, without this, it, God's cool and all, but without this, I can't go on. You have just identified your golden calf. I mean, the people knew God was there, but he wasn't enough. They needed this golden calf. Yeah, but I believe in God. But you're still an idolater, so am I. And we need to come to grips with that. So what is your reason for living? I mean, when it comes down to it, what do you look to for your security so that you're going to be okay, for, for, for your significance so that you know that you're worth something, for, for your satisfaction because, you know what, this is a tough world. What is it that you look to to be okay other than God or in addition to God? Whatever you look to other than God is your golden calf, calf. And, it's, and it's usually good things. Like your paycheck, your family, special relationship, approval, success, comfort, good times, a good reputation, good health. Now, what's wrong with those things? Absolutely nothing. Except when we say, I have to have these. And we look to those other than God or in addition to God to be okay. When we do, we're saying, God is not enough. Just like the Israelites who built the golden calf. And here's the thing. Whatever we live for other than God will ultimately destroy you. Because it can never live up to what only God can do. So you put all your, you put your faith and your trust, you depend on it, and then it lets you down, and then it destroys you. The rug's being ripped out from underneath you. But God graciously gives us red flags, okay? Drivenness, guilt, worry, anger, emptiness. Those kind of uh, intense, miserable emotions are like the little red lights on your dashboard telling you something's wrong. And a lot of times, I mean, how weird would it be if the red light comes up on your, on your dashboard and you break out your sharpie and you go, ee, 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 and you color it out with a black marker. It's all fixed. No. Or if you just ignore them, I'm just not going to look at them. No, something's wrong. It needs to be dealt with. And we forget when the bitterness hits or the anger hits or the emptiness hits, we forget that those are things, those are, that's a diagnosis leading us to the one that can heal us. And so we just wallow in it. Say, God, why are you doing this to me? No, God is showing you so he can help you and be with you and heal you. God is trying to get your attention. 
to help you see and admit that you have a problem, to draw you out of denial. I don't know about you, but I live in denial a lot. And that's why I need people in my life to help me see my blind spots. And I need to welcome that. So from the ark, we learn that God desires to be with you. From the curtain, you learn that our sin prevents it. And now third and last, the altar. Outside of the tent in the courtyard, there was an altar where sacrifices were made for sin. And so if I lived in that time, I would bring a sheep or a goat or a bull, but it had to be without defect because it represented a perfect sacrifice. And then I would identify with the animal by, by placing my hands on the animal's head. And it meant that the sacrifice was dying in my place to pay my debt for sin. So, what does the altar teach us? It teaches us that only a perfect sacrifice can open the way. Only a perfect sacrifice can give us access to God. Only a perfect sacrifice will allow us to be in the presence of God, to be with God. And you know, I know a lot of sincere, thoughtful people have a problem with this. And, you know, they think animal sacrifices. I mean, that's so primitive. I can't believe people in 2019 are talking about animal sacrifices. What do you mean a debt needs to be paid? If there is a God, he can just forgive, right? No. That's not how it works. He can't just forgive without a payment. You know why? Because that would be unjust. Think about it. If somebody deeply wrongs you, if somebody just hurts you, man, your first thought is, I'm going to get you back. I am going to make you pay. It is payment time, right? Why? Because there's a debt. And there are only two ways to pay the debt. One way is to make them pay. You hurt them, you exclude them, you cuss them out, you turn the back on them, you tear down their reputation, you degrade them until you feel like the debt is repaid, which is never. And in the process, you end up poisoning your own soul and you become a hard and bitter person. What's the other option? You forgive them, okay? But how? There's a debt to be paid, right? Well, when you want to hurt them, you don't. When you want to drag their reputation through the mud, you know, to warn other people, you don't. When you want to cuss them out, you don't. When you want to dwell on the horrible things they did, you don't. And it's difficult and it makes it feel like you're paying the debt. You know why? Because you are. And here's what happens over time. Over time, your anger fades because you've been paying down the debt yourself. Someone's gotta pay it. 
And you remember, someone's paid your debt. Now, now look at it another way. If you're watching the news and there's a report that came on about a man who is undeniably guilty of rape and murder. I mean, he was caught red-handed with, with you know, witnesses and camera and everything. And the judge hears all of the arguments, all of the you know, uh, evidence and everything. And he says, you know what? I'm in a good mood today. I'm going to let it slide. You can go. We would be outraged, right? And rightly so. Because if he doesn't pay, society pays. I mean, he could do, go out and, you know, do it again. Others will think that they can get away with it, get away with it too. So justice is a good thing. God created us and sustains us, and, and we owe him everything. And we owe him to obey him. We owe it to our neighbor. Not that we could ever, ever pay it back. We can't. But we owe him everything. So there is a debt. So how in the world can the death of some sheep pay the debt? It can't. It can only point us to the one who can. Same as the high priest and, and the temple. They are all pointers. It all points to Jesus. Jesus is the real temple. The apostle John says, the word God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, tabernacled among us. Jesus is the place where God ultimately meets with his people. Jesus is the place where we experience God. Jesus is our high priest, the one who offers the perfect sacrifice and opens the way into the most holy place with God the Father once and for all time. That's who Jesus is. The Gospel of Mark says, as soon as Jesus died, on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was torn in two, meaning it is now permanently open. And it was torn from top to bottom, meaning it was not man, but God who tore it open and provided access. Do you see the reality of what we're talking about here? God has thrown the door to his presence wide open because the perfect sacrifice had been offered once and for all time. God has paid your debt. And he has paid your debt in full. So much of Christianity is like, okay, God made the down payment, but now it's up to me to make ongoing payments. He paid the debt in full. It is finished. And as a result, the moment that you trust in Jesus, you have immediate and intimate access to God's presence. 
All of your past, present, and future sin is forgiven. And he welcomes you. And he embraces you with the same love that he has for Jesus. With the same love that he has for Jesus. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. You can't enter without Jesus. It doesn't matter how bad you are. If you trust in Jesus, the door into God's presence is wide open. That's the truth of the gospel. The author of Hebrews says, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, let us then approach the throne of grace, the mercy seat, with confidence, not with trembling like the high priest in the Old Testament, but with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Now listen, if you're taking this seriously and you're thinking through the implications of this, this is going to feel a little scandalous to you. Or, or maybe it just seems too good to be true. The all-powerful creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who holds it all together, who is all completely, totally holy and just, desires to be with us? Yes. He does. He created you with a longing to be with him. All of your desires point to and can only be fulfilled in an intimate, close relationship with God. But we owed God a debt that we cannot pay, but God in his great love paid it himself on the cross. Jesus got what we deserved, forsaken by the Father, so that we could get what he deserves, which is chose, uh, closeness with God the Father for all time. And now one day, all of your deepest longings will be fulfilled. And even now, today, he invites you into his presence. Even now, you get a glimpse of that future glory. Even now, today, you can experience God. Don't settle. Don't settle. We can't. I need you to remind me. Don't settle for going through the religious motions. Seek his face. He tells us if we seek his face, we will find him. You have access to God the Father. He can be real to you, more real than you ever imagined. Because he is with you. So it, it comes down to this. Have you trusted in Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? Now, if not, maybe you're not there yet, but I might encourage you, I plead with you to do that today by faith. Reach out and, in a sense, place your hands on the Lamb of God saying, Jesus, I trust Jesus to be my perfect sacrifice, that, that he paid my, my debt that I, that I owed. I, I urge you to trust in him. He is the one that gives you access to the Father. And if you have questions about that, afterwards, come talk to me, one of the other pastors here, or a trusted Christian uh, a friend that, that might be here. For those of you who have already put your trust in Jesus, 
this Christmas, I want you to remember, I mean, it's all about God coming to be with you. And not just during the holidays. Let Christmas remind you to continue to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, without any hesitation. Let Christmas remind you that God has given you the priceless gifts of mercy and grace in your time of need. The most treasured gift of all, Jesus himself. Let Christmas remind you that your entire life is an act of worship. And that is what makes God more real to you. So let me end with this question. How will you worship this week? How will you worship starting right now with the determination to not go through the religious motions, but to glorify God with all of your being? Jesus has made it possible for you to boldly enter the presence of God. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?